Last week, David and Goliath. David faced the giant alone. And the Lord enabled him to be victorious. And you can imagine the rejoicing. All over Israel, mothers and sisters rejoiced that their sons would not be sacrificed to the Philistines. That the threat of the Philistine invasion had abated because David had defeated Goliath. All across Israel, there was rejoicing that there would be no more bloodshed in the short run and that they would be victorious over their enemies. And it was all traceable to one person, David. And so you can imagine the spotlight shining on that young man, the adulation and praise. He was the only one who was willing to go, and against what seemed to be impossible odds, he had defeated the Philistine giant. He was a national hero, tremendous relief. Everyone in the nation was grateful to him. And for anyone who had a memory, they would have remembered that Saul was not willing to go, even though he was king. He hadn't stepped forward. So the tide of popularity has shifted radically. And we pick up the story in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing, with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time, from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp, as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand, and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with David, but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him, and gave him command over a thousand men, and David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. This is God's word. Let let us pray. O Lord, open our eyes and our hearts to the matchless eternal truths that you have given us this week and in these words. And help us to see your work in our life as a result. Thank you that you're alive, 
And that our, though our need is great, your grace is greater still. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've been, as I've been saying, this life of David is the most comprehensive account in antiquity of a single human life. We have no other human being, no record of any other human being in those days before the coming of Christ about which we have any more information. This episode, Saul and David, is about the absolute destructiveness of envy. One of the seven deadly sins, it is the root of most, if not all, human misery. I want what you have. You have something that I wish I had. That's envy. It's a lack of contentment with our state and position. Your children have done well. I wish mine were. You have achieved success in your business. I wish mine had. And on and on and on. This is what has invaded the heart of Saul, as we see very clearly. And it's understandable. Let me say in passing that uh, some of the times that, that I envy, some of the times that you envy, uh, there's really no reason for it. I mean, we're, we're sort of uh, just completely deluded into wanting things that are of no consequence. And it's just sort of a waywardness and wandering of our heart. But anyone with any sense would know if, if they were king... Anyone with any sense who lived in Israel in those days would say, David is a champion. I mean, he's a great young man. He's a godly man. He's a powerful warrior. He has spared the sons and brothers of, and husbands of the entire nation. And he has given credit to God in doing so, relying upon him and then thanking him as a result. And as I said, the, the, no doubt the moms and sisters and wives were happy, and they come out to sing. In verse 6, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul. They were thrilled. They weren't envious of David. They were happy that he had delivered from the threat of death their husbands and brothers and sons and fathers. And so they came, and so they sang. And verse 8, Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? Instead of rejoicing with David's success, which also benefited Saul quite dramatically, Saul becomes envious. Envy is a life breaker. Although a little bit like greed, it seems like one of those lesser sins. The more subtle sins, but it's a life breaker. Saul just, his whole attitude changes. Now it's true, he had some struggles before, but from this point on, the envy that he feels for Saul and the sense uh, for David and for the, ri the sense of rivalry that he feels from this young man who's coming up perhaps to, th to challenge him to be king completely changes his life. Envy is serious, and many don't take it seriously, but it's lethal. And so we raise it today. 
What are its signs? We are unable to joy, enjoy what someone else has because of the comparison. Sibling rivalry is probably the strongest expression of this. My brother just got a promotion, and I hate him for it. <laughs> My brother got a new car, and I despise it. Let's see if I can say something negative about it. I bet he's not honest. I bet he cheated to get it. And on and on it goes. We are too quick to compare them with ourselves. We think that their success is about us. And really, it wasn't. David's success wasn't about Saul. I mean, the benefits came to him. And our brothers' and sisters' successes is not about us. It's about them. But we don't see it that way when envy takes over. We are unable to joy, enjoy what someone else has because of the comparison, and we are unable to enjoy what we have because of resentment. We begrudge someone who has more or what we think they do not deserve. And this leads to anger. That's what it says. Saul was very anger, angry. Envy and anger, very, very close. Opposite sides of the same coin. When we become envious of someone else, usually we become angry in, about something, either with them, or with our position and situation, or with God. Why have you blessed them? What did they do? Why do they get? And not me. It's not fair. And our heart goes and bends all in the wrong direction. And instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice... We become conflicted. Application. Every other deadly sin in the seven deadly sins feels good for a while. Adultery, greed, gluttony, they all have immediate gratification. But envy sucks all the joy out of our lives immediately. You cannot enjoy life when you are comparing and begrudging. No, satisfa no satisfaction comes from this. This is a clear sign that it is destructive. Flee it. When envy comes over you, you know the feeling. It's not like it's pleasant for a while, like some of the other sins. It, we immediately feel inwardly polluted, inwardly angry, inwardly frustrated, inwardly begrudging, inwardly critical of what someone else has. And all of this has overtaken Saul. And it leads to a kind of slavery. Envy, like other sin, will take us over. It will distort our whole lives and our whole way of thinking. Clearly this happened to Saul. Now, and then we have this uh, difficult passage here, verse 10, where it says, that The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. I don't want to go there except to say that's another sermon. But the, the, uh, the idea is that God used this for good, as he does all things. But Saul became enslaved by it. For everyone to see. Anyone who had eyes could see that the king hated David. That's what envy does to us. It distorts our whole lives. And anyone can see it but us. We know it's true on the inside. 
but we can't always see it on the outside. Envy, as I say then, page 11, brings slavery. He hurled the, uh, the spear at David, saying to himself, I will pin David to the wall. This terrifying spirit, um, as I said, is mentioned also in Judges 9.23, a, a spirit of envy came over him. In the beginning, you do envy, but eventually envy does you. You lose your ability to do anything else. You lose control. The more you give in to envy, the more you put yourself in touch with supernatural forces outside of yourself, and you get locked in. That's what happens to Saul. He has an inward contribution, and an outward contribution also comes upon him. Envy leads to slavery in part because there are evil forces of envy outside of us which are also filled with envy and and we become united to them. The whole world lives by these things. And when from the inside we give way to envying what others have, we are united to the world of evil and darkness which seeks to raise up in a thousand, a million ways, some above others. We do not envy everything, as I say, but what we do envy will eat us up. It's different for different people. Be surprised what people envy you for. You might say, well, I I didn't think that was anything. They may envy your happiness, your smile. They may envy your sense of peace and equanimity. They may envy that you have a child, a wayward one maybe, but you have a child. They may envy your house, your voice, your appearance. On and on and on it goes. We do not envy everything, but what we do envy will eat us up. Saul is driven by a love of power, and this betrays it. He likes being king, and David is now a rival and a threat. His efforts to kill David are covert at first, But later, he is very open about it, so much so that David is driven from the palace and spends his life in caves and on the run. Envy reveals something in your life that is more important than God. For Saul, it was kingship. What is it for you? Envy can be helpful, at least in this respect. It exposes what you want. It tells you what you really value, even if you won't admit it to yourself. When envy comes over you, it exposes the idols of our lives. So application, look at the things that you most begrudge others for having. If you don't feel they deserve it as much as you do, it reveals that something is driving you. Name it. Say so. Oh, aha, I see now. I'm more materialistic than I thought. I'm more this or that than I realized. Anything more important to your heart than God is a drug, and in the end it will destroy you. There are lots of different ways for this to happen. Spouse, children, job, acquisitions, appearance. The list is really endless. 
as I said, you'll be surprised what other people envy you for. And you'll be surprised to see what rises up in your heart when you envy others. For Saul, it was kingship and power, position. For many others, it's that too. What is it for you? And what's the way out? The the passage opens with the beginning of another famous couplet in David's life. We've seen David and Goliath, David and Saul, and now here and in next week we will see David and Jonathan. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not, lose, did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Do you see the contrast between father and son? And not just father and son, but king and crown prince. Owner and and inheritor. The one who was in line for the throne, and everyone knew it, was Jonathan. He was the one being prepared to take the place of Saul. He was the one rival Saul had to the throne from his own family. He was the one who, when he went to sleep at night and woke up in the morning, thought of himself as the next king of Israel. But when this happens, and the rivalry rises up in David, Jonathan's reaction is the opposite of Saul's. He embraces this rival, this threat to his future. If David continues on this path, Jonathan will become an also-ran, a second or third He will not be the next king of Israel. And how does he respond? He loves him. He enters into a covenant with him. And as if anyone else might wonder what he felt about David, verse 4, he takes off his robe. He gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, a sign of his position and his authority. He becomes defenseless before him. As I say in the outline, Jonathan is not envious of David. Both he and his father see the rising power of David, and both have a lot to lose. Saul opposes God's work, and Jonathan embraces it. Jonathan gave to David his crown rights and inheritance, even his sword. Jonathan does not do this because of friendship or because he is bowing to David's greater strength. Although they're beginning to be friends, they barely know each other. His heart goes out to him, but but they have not been friends since boyhood. Instead, his feeling is, I believe that God's salvation is coming through you, and the only way I can participate in it is to get off the throne. And so I do. This is beautiful. Not many other so spectacular pictures in all of Scripture of a lack of envy, of an embracing of someone else's success, and of a rejoicing in what God was clearly doing in the life of the nation 
that meant I would take a step back. I would not be the king that I had thought I would. Jonathan clearly is an unusual young man who has tremendous insight and at this moment is given grace by the Lord to avoid this envy and its traps. So the application. How do we get free of envy? We do it by following what Jonathan did. First of all, he puts his happiness into David's happiness. He wants David's prosperity so much that nothing else will make him happy. He follows the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Who wouldn't want to be recognized as the next king of Israel? In fact, that's what he thought he was going to be. But instead, he's willing to give all that up and quickly and publicly surrendering his tunic, his coat, his sword, everything, so that Jonathan would be recognizing David publicly as the next king, the heir apparent to the throne. He wants David's prosperity so much that nothing else will make him happy. He loved him, as it says, as himself. Jonathan shows us Jesus' attitude toward us, making himself radically vulnerable so that no one he loves so that the one he loves can sit on the throne. The only way to put you on the throne was for Jesus to lose it. See, Jonathan, this like becomes in this in this instance becomes a type of Christ for us. Not in all ways, but in this way. Jesus gave over his sword and experienced its cutting. He loves to see people get more than they deserve and will die to make it happen. This is the opposite of envy. When we do well, he rejoices. He doesn't see us as a rival. And just as Jonathan found his happiness in David's, so may the Lord enable us to find our rejoicing and happiness in the benefits and blessings of someone else. Paul writes this way, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and sorrow with those who sorrow. Jonathan shows us what our attitude ought to be towards Jesus. He got off the throne so David could take it. We should get off our throne so Jesus can have it. The more Saul held on to the kingship, the less kingly he became. The less Jonathan tried to hold on to his royalty, the more royal he became. If this is true, then our service of God is reasonable and filled with joy. We are free from thinking other people or other things can satisfy us. So we are set free from envying them. The recipients of good news of forgiveness of Jesus Christ have a lot to be happy about in other people because we're set free. We're no longer under the throne, uh, under the under the curse or the threat of the sword. We have been set free, so we are free to rejoice with whatever good thing happens to you. That's good for me. Whatever good happens to you is good for me, Jonathan says. Give up my throne? Okay, I'll do it. Even more radically, Jesus says, I will do whatever I can to make you blessed and happy. Not that it will always come in the form of prosperity and ease, but he will give us his blessings. He will get off the throne of heaven and come down to be our Redeemer 
and rise again from the dead so that we would have an internal inheritance that includes the thrones of heaven. Wonderful truth. Saul couldn't see it. Saul saw only negativity in other people's positive results. But Jonathan did. So it's just this simple. If something good happens to you, it's good for me too. If something wonderful happens in your life, my reaction should not be, oh, I wish that would happen to me. It should be, yes, praise the Lord, thank you, wonderful, tell me more, tell me more. That's what Jonathan did. How much more does our Savior? So every piece of good news, even with your brothers and sisters in your blood family, is good for you too. It's not a cause for rivalry, comparison, envy, or shame. It's a cause for rejoicing, the Bible says. Remember Jonathan's reaction to the worst news he could have received, perhaps barring health-related. The worst news he could have received is, you, crown prince, are not going to get the throne. You are not going to be the next king of Israel. And his father was teaching him subtly and openly that this was the only thing that really mattered. I mean, this is really what mattered to Saul. He wanted to be king, he was king, and he didn't want to lose it. So he surely taught his own son, Jonathan, to value these things too. So Jonathan had been instructed subtly and openly to want the throne to consider it to be the highest goal of the society, of the culture, to be able to get to that point was the greatest thing that could ever happen to him. And Jonathan said, no, that's the greatest thing that could ever happen to him. And he was set free. So the beauty of the gospel is that it's not about us. It's not about what we have and what we get in this life. As we sang earlier, we're going to fly away. And as great as we are, and as big as our funeral, 15 minutes later, they'll be eating chicken salad somewhere in the church basement. (laughs) Just a fact. (laughs) Heap up all of your trophies. Let all the people say all the good things in the world about you. Fifteen minutes later, be chicken salad. It's not worth fighting over. It's not worth bad blood between brothers and sisters. It's not worth that gnawing feeling of envy when someone else does well. The good news is we have a Redeemer who sets us free from those things and enables us to embrace their happiness like Jonathan did for David. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel because Jesus gave it all to us himself. He got off the throne to put us on it. He didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped and held on to. He gave it up. He came and emptied himself and became a servant that we would have eternal life and a great inheritance and a wonderful future. We praise the Lord for Jonathan's example, for Jesus' example, and for release from envy. Let us pray.
Oh, Lord, please bring peace in our families and peace in our hearts so that envy would not destroy relationships, sibling relationships, marriage relationships, friendships. Help us not to envy what other people have, rather to rejoice in it. And even when it puts us in the shade and puts us in bad light or by comparison we feel inadequate, help us to see, as Jonathan did, that envy is distorting and ruinous and enslaving. Help us not to go the way of Saul, but the way of Jesus, who might have held on to everything and we'd have never known the difference, who might have continued to have all power and all position, but he gave it up. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing so. And thank you for sending us the example of Jonathan like unto yourself. Help us to rejoice with those who rejoice. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.